Good morning. <laughs> well, it is really great to be here. Uh, I know speakers always say that, but I really mean it this weekend. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, I live in Portland, a good friend of mine moved out here about a month ago, and his name is The Sun. So my wife, <laughs> my wife and daughter uh, came out for the weekend. We came out on Friday, and we're just like, oh my gosh, it's beautiful out here. This is where you went. So it's been good. <laughs> a little bit about myself. Uh, Growing up, about five years old, uh, some of my earliest memories, I remember uh, having a lot of insecurity as a child. Some of the things that went into that, I think, you know, in grade school, kindergarten, I had these big old glasses. Uh, There were other kids that had glasses, but I had, like, bifocals. My eyes are pretty bad, so thick rims. And I had some curly hair, you know, and uh, now I actually enjoy it, but when I was five years old, you know, you want anything to not stand out. So I'm five years old with bifocals and an afro, and I'm running around trying to get people to play with me, like, play soccer, play soccer, and no one wants to play with you. So kind of the last kid picked, and I remember growing up at school and just feeling the sense of uh, being unwanted, that insecurity. And then coming home, and I love my dad, uh, but growing up, him and I had a pretty tense relationship, and I can remember just uh, being scared to be at home growing up as a kid. So there's a sense of home's a fearful, scary place. School is a place of rejection, feeling unwanted, isolated. And my family were not followers of Jesus, but uh, a friend of my mom's was a pastor, and he gave her this children's Bible. He's like, you can give this to your son Josh, see if he, he likes it, he's learned to read. He's like, oh, okay, I'll pass it off. So I got this children's Bible, and I can remember falling in love with it at a young age. So I kind of plug in, and I start reading and digging in, and, uh, and it's odd, I'm five years old, but I'm loving the Bible, you know, five, six, seven. And some of the stories that, uh, it just struck me, I remember this sense that God is a God of the outcast. Uh, not only a God who loves the outcast, but even a God who works through the outcast. So I can remember just the significance of seeing Israel and going, God picks a nation of slaves. This is, this is his people. And the stories of David, where David, he's like anointed to be king, uh, but Saul's coming after him, so he's out on the run, and there's pictures of David, and he's kind of with these, you know, his gang of criminals, and they're hiding in the mountains, and he's being hunted for his life. And that sense of fear, but trying to trust in God in the midst of it. And Moses, where before he leads the people out of Egypt, and he's got these 40 years where he basically gets kicked out into the desert for 40 years, and he's isolated and alone and just kind of herding sheep on his own and feeling like he's a failure. And Abraham, being called, told, hey, you're going to actually be the father of uh, this great family, and through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And he's like in his 90s and still doesn't have a kid yet, and he's going, is this really, really happening? And I remember just this strong sense of a, a god who could deal with the harsh realities of life, and a God who not only loved the outcast again, but actually uh, works through them for his glory. I think this is one of the same reasons I fell in love with Lord of the Rings at an early early age. Uh, My uncle uh, gave me, I was about third grade, if I remember right, he gave me uh, the set, Lord of the Rings, and he goes, I think these are a little bit above your reading level, Josh, but uh, just in case. I was like, I'll show you above, above my reading level. So I plugged in, and I started digging into those. And again, you know, the hobbits are kind of like the rejects of Middle Earth. They're sort of like the little outcasts. But they actually get drawn into this grand story where they become the agents of redemption in this story that uh, encompasses their their world as a whole. And so I think this sense of, it, it struck me as beautiful at a young age, that God is a God of the outcast, who not only loves them and cares for them, but actually calls them into his mission and works through them. Uh, for a redemptive purposes in the world. As I got older, though, I began to realize that not everybody shared this sentiment, that actually this is uh, an element of the gospel that's tough for many people. 
I was watching a documentary recently uh, called Collision uh, with uh, Christopher Hitchens as a leading atheist. And see here, uh, Hitchens on the, that would be your left, and Doug Wilson on the right, a pastor. And they're talking, and, uh, and it's a great movie if you see it. So it's uh, Hitchens as a leading atheist, and, and Wilson is a, a pastor. And, and they're just basically digging into uh, questions for each other on, on faith and all. And one of Hitchens' big questions he comes out with is, if you're the God of the universe, if you're the creator of all things in existence, and you want to reveal yourself to the world, you want to show everybody this is who I am, why the heck do you go through backwater podunk Israel, through an itinerant homeless carpenter on the outskirts of society? It's like You've got the ability to come down in blazing glory. You've got the ability to come through the Roman Empire, the center of power, of technology, of wisdom, of influence, of wealth. Uh, God needs a better PR strategy, basically. Yeah. So Hitchens thinks that you know, it would have been a good idea if God had actually consulted Don Draper first and maybe gotten an, a better advertising campaign in motion. Uh, but God chooses to work this way nonetheless. And I think Paul actually addresses it. It's a good question. Why? Uh, why does God not go through the centers and channels of power and influence? But why does God go to the margins? How does this take place? I want to uh, look at 1 Corinthians 1 today. And this is a place where I think Paul tackles this question head on. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Let's stop there for a second. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that God actually reveals himself to the world through the weakness of the message of the cross. And this is actually a scandal to the intelligence and the wisdom of the world. Now what's going on there is, is God an anti-intellectual? Uh, I don't think that's exactly what it's saying. Uh, it's, is it like, you know, the wise man is going, well, let's see, two plus two equals four. And God's going, actually, it's three, because I just want to throw you off, you know. I don't think that's the case, that God's actually just being anti-intellectual, so to say. Uh, but when Paul quotes here, and he says, um, you know, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, and will frustrate. He's quoting Isaiah 29. And what's happening in Isaiah 29 is God is telling his people, Israel, that you have become, you've got your wisdom, your intelligence, your power, your might, these things, and you've become arrogant. You've actually oppressed the poor. Uh, you've become arrogant towards me. There's sin, rebellion, idolatry, all this stuff going on. And, uh, and so my movement is actually going to frustrate those who think they've uh, attained security through their own wisdom, power, and influence. And to really understand then, when Paul is saying uh, the message of the cross, it's a message of weakness that God's wisdom is revealed in. If we try and understand what's going on there, then we have to understand, like Paul did, he's going back to Isaiah, we have to understand the message of the cross in this broader narrative context of, of Israel, of God's people Israel. And how the cross is actually the climax of God's story through Israel. And so I want to take a quick minute here, because I think uh, when, what Paul is saying here is not something new. It's not like this is new in Jesus, but this is actually the story 
of Scripture as a whole. So if we go to Israel's story, and we try to remember, where does Israel's story begin? And Israel's story begins at the margins. Uh, We can go to that slide. There we go. Okay, so there's a sense that uh, God is telling the ancient world, I'm not actually going to reveal myself to the mighty imperial powerhouses of Egypt, of Babylon, of Assyria, of Rome. Uh, I'm actually going to go early on in Egypt. I'm going to go out to the periphery of empire. I'm going to go to the margins. I'm not going to go through the centers of power and influence and technology and wealth. I'm going to go to a nation of slaves that's getting their butts kicked on the outskirts of the empire. I'm going to take them and I'm going to redeem them. If we go to the next image... And we see God actually delivering. This is Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. God's pulling his people out of Egypt. And so he takes this nation that's on the margins of society, on the periphery. God goes to the periphery. He pulls them out of Egypt. And if we go to the next slide, and God actually places them at the center, in the promised land, at the center where Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, all the ancient uh, peoples of the Mediterranean world, Israel's at the crossroads. And God's going, I'm going to pull you out from the periphery, and I'm going to make this the center. I'm going to take the outcasts and make this the center through which I'm revealing my glory and my presence to the world. So God is revealing himself to the ancient world through weakness. He's going, if you want to see me, you find me in Israel, my nation of redeemed slaves. But there's a problem that takes place. Uh, What's the problem? And Israel, at the center of the nations here, actually becomes characterized herself by sin, rebellion, arrogance, oppression, idolatry, all the things that God had a problem with with the surrounding areas. So now it's Israel that actually comes under God's judgment. If we go to the next slide. In Ezekiel 5, God says through Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries all around her. So God says, I actually took you out from slavery, from the periphery, as a nation of outcasts, and I set you in the center. But over time, you actually became yourself characterized by sin, rebellion, idolatry, uh, oppression. And so not only, not only some oppression, but actually more than the peoples around you. So Jesus steps into the scene in this context. If we go to the next slide, we have again, it's interesting that Jesus actually starts his ministry. When Jesus comes into Israel, you would think you go to Jerusalem. That's where power is at. That's where wealth, influence, the political, religious, academic, intellectual life of the people of God is centered in Jerusalem. But Jesus actually starts his ministry out in Galilee, on the periphery, amongst the outcasts. So Jesus goes to Galilee. If we go to the next slide here, uh, this is a classic picture of Jesus calling the 12 disciples in Galilee. And so Jesus goes to the margins, he goes to the periphery, he goes to the outcasts, and he calls 12 disciples. It's interesting that the, the significance that Jesus calls 12 disciples, uh, it's as if he's recreating the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jesus and his 12 disciples are becoming to Israel what Israel of the 12 tribes was to Egypt. God's going again in Christ to the margins, and he's actually taking the outcasts, the type of disciples that Jesus calls fishermen. He calls tax collectors. He calls a zealot. There's this hodgepodge group of people. And Jesus goes, this is actually going to be the movement of the kingdom of God, breaking into kind of the corrupt structures of old. So if we go into the next 
So it starts in Galilee, but it doesn't end there. Jesus and his movement, they make their way back to Jerusalem, back to the capital. And uh, after three years of ministry, Jesus makes his way back to Jerusalem and is crucified by the powers that be. And the cross becomes a sign of Jesus' rejection by Israel, by the Roman Empire, by all the powers, authority, technology, wisdom, intellect, structure of the world as a whole. So we see the sense that, uh, sorry, I got cut off a little there on the, the thing, but the cross over on the corner, that Jesus goes to the periphery, and now in Christ, God has taken that margin. He's at the margins of Israel. He's at the margins of the Roman Empire. This is kind of going back to Hitchens, what he had a problem with, going, if you're God, why don't you start in the center and work your way out? And God goes, I'm actually going to go to the outside and work my way in. And so the message of the cross, said is actually that through the foolishness of the cross, through the weakness of the cross, through the marginalization, the outcast nature of the cross, God is dissolving the old order of things and is making this the new center around which Israel is gathered, around which the Roman Empire is gathered, around which the nations, the Gentiles, you and me, us are gathered. God is gathering the world around the cross. He's taken the margins, the periphery, the outcast area, and ultimately Christ, the crucified outcast Messiah, and he's made him the center of the new creation. And so, when Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, he's hitting at this theme throughout Scripture that God actually takes the weak, the outcast, the margins, and he makes this the center of his redemptive work. Now, I think it's interesting that this doesn't only happen there. You know, God going, this is where I'm found. If you want to find me, you go out to the margins. But I think it's not only Israel's story, it's not only Jesus' story, but I find this happening around the world today. Uh, if we go to the next slide. I want to show you a picture of uh, my friend Abraham. This is a buddy of mine. Uh, Abraham, he's a pastor in Cambodia. He came to Christ a little bit later in life, and uh, he went through a discipleship program, was going to train. And he had his eyes out. He's like, God, I want to go and serve the last and the least of these in, in my country. Where can I go? And right around that time, there's a community of about 9,000 people that was being evicted from their homes in the city. Uh, basic story, there was an international company who wanted to build a skyscraper in the heart of the city. And uh, there were some corrupt officials who wanted that skyscraper to get built and to line their pockets with money. And so... Um, Police came in about uh, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning with riot gear and flatbed pickup trucks, loaded the thousands of people onto these trucks and carted them to the outside of the city in a field and just kind of dumped them there. And so this is going on, and Abraham feels called in his heart. He goes, I'm going to go. God, I feel like you're calling me into this place. So he goes out from the center of the city of Phnom Penh, out to the field on the outskirts, and moves in uh, with this community that's been outcast, that's been exiled, that's been sent out to the margins. And uh, as Abraham goes out there, if we go to the next slide, one of our, so they, they start to kind of rebuild just through rough stuff they can find. Uh, Abraham helps the community rebuild, and this is a part about a year to two years in as they've rebuilt stuff. Uh, but one of the biggest issues um, early on and then continuing was when the rainy season comes in uh, was roofing. So where we first kind of got partnered up with Abraham uh, was recognizing the roofing emergency that was coming. Because during the rainy season there, when it rains, it really it dumps heavy and hard. And uh, you can imagine if you're uh, a mom with five kids, there's a lot of the families there, and the rain's dumping through the roof at night, and you're actually getting soaked, you can't sleep. 
it hits the, wa- the ground and mixes with, there's no sanitation, so there's sewage running through the streets, so the water mixes with that. That brings mosquitoes that have malaria, and you're really facing uh, just a miserable existence. If we go to the next slide, uh, you see these are some of the rifts before. Maybe we go to one more. And you can see, just kind of imagine the, the water dumping through these roofs. And uh, so Abraham and us and uh, an organization that we're friends with, we all kind of dream and brainstorm and go, okay, we'll provide uh, the roofing materials. And Abraham's church kind of rallies the community around. And one thing I forgot to mention, as he goes into the community, he has save, uh, life savings of $6,000. He uses it to buy a small building in the slum. He uh, basically constructs a small school. It becomes a church on Sunday. And so the community kind of loves uh, his presence there. So the church rallies the, the community around, and they go, here's the deal. You get free roofing materials if you help the other five families in your group build their house. And so they all run out to the forest and chop down wood to build the structures, and it turns into kind of like an old Amish barn raising thing where the, the community comes out, parties it up, and builds these houses. So if we go to the next. And so these are uh, some of the after houses. And so over the course of a couple months, hundreds of houses um, get constructed this way throughout and in that process, a number of the folks in the slum come to know Christ. Uh, it, it's interesting, Abraham said a number of the men actually um, felt really good because in the past when they'd seen stuff like that get done, the men are just kind of on the sidelines watching outsiders come in and build the homes for them or whatever. Uh, but the fact, and they feel worthless, like I can't even provide for my family and now someone else has to come build our home. And them getting to go out and actually construct the stuff and be a part of the transformation in their own community, like this is amazing. Tell us more about this Jesus that, that's led you here. Uh, so if we go to the next slide. One of the next issues was the sewage and sanitation issues. Uh, you can see, obviously, it's, it's a mess. And again, when the rainy season comes, this rises. And so if we go to the next slide. So a local guy in the community, they hire. And we hire him basically to build. He, he, had, he knows how to build um, uh, cement pipes and all. So he's living in the slum. He gets to work and starts building these pipes and rallies the community, and, and they lay them in the ground and uh, getting all the sewage and junk out. In the process, he's telling Abraham, he's like, I think you're the reincarnation of this God who's come to help the people. And Abraham goes, I'm no reincarnated God. I'm just a humble servant of Jesus. And eventually he goes, I want to know this Jesus. And when I first met him, he had a look on his face just about like that. <laughs> just kind of like, suspicious, who are you? You know, and... Uh, I came back, you know, about six months later and a year later, and now every time I see him, he's just like beaming from ear to ear, running and just giving that kind of a bear hug. And he says, thank you so much that, that now we know about, about Christ, about Jesus. And so he's actually become a leader out there now. But one of the amazing things that takes place is you uh, met a lot of folks there who, through experiencing the mercy of Christ in a place of weakness, in a place of brokenness, of discouragement, of shame, um, through experiencing the mercy of Christ in that place, have fallen in love with him and have begun to follow him and have become leaders out there. They've become the outcasts, so to speak, that are now uh, leading the presence of the gospel in their community. One of the other things that surprises me is that it didn't start, stop there. Uh, almost like Israel of old, where God goes out to the outskirts, uh, that the presence of what's going on out there has actually spoken back into the life of the city as a whole, back into the life of Phnom Penh, the capital. If we go to the next slide... 
This is Pawnee. He is a uh, military general. I can't remember the exact title, but he oversees hundreds of soldiers. And he had been frustrated at the level of corruption and things that he saw. And when he heard what was going on out outside the city in the slum with Abraham, he's like, I go check this out. So he goes out and checks it out, falls in love with it, and wants to know more about Jesus, and ends up becoming a, a Christ follower. When I met him about uh, six to eight months ago, about eight months ago, I met him and he was going, my dream now is to share the gospel with the hundreds of soldiers under my command uh, back then. He's like, I just, I need to know it better first. So he's going through this discipleship process to understand the gospel better. Go to the next slide. This is Srevat. She was a, uh, an accountant back in the city who had grown up as an orphan, had always been frustrated at seeing uh, the way that often husbands treated their wives and, and family dysfunction in general, and actually became interested, heard about the work as well, and went out to volunteer. And in the process of volunteering, it was actually through seeing what she saw as healthy family, family lives amongst the churches there, um, the people from the church. She goes, a family like that, that's different. Where does that come from? As she began to learn more about Jesus, she said, I want to follow Jesus. So now uh, she's actually full-time on staff in the place. Uh, and when I met her, she's constantly got her Bible open, reading through. She's like, I want to know the scriptures inside and out so I can lead the gospel in our country. Go to the next slide. Uh, this is Yah, and he was uh, more of a kind of mafia, criminal gang, you know, drug, drug issues. And he was in that whole world. And uh, he, he kind of found his way out there somehow, and in the process got involved, and Jesus gets a hold of his life, and now he's being trained to be a church planter into one of the uh, unreached parts of the country. Go to the next. And this is Viesna, and he was a, a Buddhist scholar, actually, uh, training uh, just in the academic world and all. And through a number of circumstances that took place in his life, he comes out and gets engaged too, and, uh, and is now being equipped and raised up as a church planner as well. And so you see this kind of, this, this intricate sense where the gospel actually goes out to the margins, to the outcasts, to the periphery, but then it speaks back into the whole. God goes, I'm going to actually take the periphery and make it the center. I'm going to make this the place through which my redemptive movement speaks back into the life of the community as a whole, of the nations of the, as a whole, of the world as a whole. And so what you end up with, too, is the, as the nation, so to speak, as the, this, this new center draws people to it, you've got this motley crew of the general. You know, I'm riding in the car, and we're kind of talking with, sitting around, like, the general and the accountant and the, you know, mafia dude and the Buddhist scholar, and just going, how did we all get <laughs> into the mix of this together? You know? And I think that's what the gospel does. Often, you know, as we get to know each other within the body of Christ, there's a sense of, you're here, and, and you're here, and how do we all get into the mix of this together? It's like, oh yeah, Jesus, he showed up in the weakness and the margins of our life and the areas uh, of our brokenness, and he's drawn us together as a people. So God still works this way today. Uh, and now, as I mentioned, one of the last um, sort of unreached, uh, unchurched areas of the country, uh, there are about 20 families that are getting sent out as farmers to go and, and farm and plant a church up in, in that area. Uh, which is, is exciting to see going on. So what started there, reaching back into the hole. Now, <clears throat> Paul also says that God's ways, this method that he uses, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. As Hitchens kind of points out, this is, there's, there's a challenge here. And we go on, Paul describes this challenge. In verse 22, Paul says, uh, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I think what's going on here, Paul is actually saying the reason that the message of the cross, this weakness, this foolishness, God working through the outcast, the reason why it's a challenge is for two reasons. One is he says uh, that the, the Jews are looking for miracles. I think there's a sense of like as often religious people, you know, ourselves included, be a sign of like we don't want God to show up with us in the margins. We want God to show up and fix the world. A miracle, you know, is really the sense where God kind of breaks in and fixes what's broken. And so we have a problem often. We demand, God, we need you to show up and fix the world. And when that happens, then we'll believe. If you're the all-powerful, all-knowing God and you're real, uh, you would jump in to stop the corrupt officials throwing the community outside the city. You would stop the oppression of the poor. Uh, if God, if you were real and you were all-powerful and you're good, you would heal my friend who's dying of cancer. And until you do, I can't believe. And I think one of the <clears throat> a, a, a part of the message of the cross is God going, actually, the time will come down the road where I, I fix and heal what's been broken. But in this kind of sin-struck, fallen world in this time, I don't fix it, per se, but the message of the cross is, like, I'll be with you in it. That God actually enters through the cross into the brokenness, the alienation, the marginalization, the suffering of humanity, and goes, I'm here with you. I had a friend who uh, had a baby a couple years back. Uh, we were roommates. I lived in their basement and a family that uh, I was close with. And I remember we were processing the birth after it happened. And they had, they were in the hospital, they had the doctors and the nurses, and he had a friend who was a doula who was kind of assisting his wife through the process. And he says, I remember being so angry and frustrated. And he's like, the reason I was angry is because we came in and um, the Nurses just kept kind of telling us, it's going to be great. You're going to be fine. It'll be smooth. Everything will go wonderful. And don't worry, you know. Um, and, and he's like, in contrast to our friend, the doula told us, uh, this is going to hurt like hell, and I'm going to be with you in it, you know. And so in the moment, like the hours where they're in the trauma, they're in the, the, trauma, they're in the, the pain, the labor pains, and they're going through just the, the experience, and it did get rough for them um, in that experience, and uh, he's like, I just felt this anger, this rage towards the doctors and nurses, this feeling of, you lied to us. Like, you lied. This actually really hurts and it sucks. But I felt this companionship with our friend who said, who was honest, going, this is going to be hard, but I'm going to be with you in it. And something about the bond that came out of that between them and their friend uh, was amazing. And I think that's a lot like what God says in the message of the cross. He's like, I'm not going to fix it yet. This is going to be hard but I'm going to be with you in it. And so the second reason that Paul says, one is that we demand, God, you've got to fix the world, and then I'm going to believe. Then I'll, I'll be with you. The second, I believe, is that uh, he says the Greeks look for wisdom. The non-Jewish, the Gentiles, everyone else you know are looking for wisdom. I think there's a sense that, okay, God, if you're not going to fix it, that's okay, but then I demand that you explain the world. I need you to explain why it's so messed up. If we go back to Hitchens, again, that's another thing that comes up, and that's a common thing today of, of going, yeah, if God is real, he's all-powerful, he's good, this world is so messed up, like, if he's not going to fix it, he's at least got to explain why he does it this way. 
And one of the frustrating things is that God doesn't necessarily give us a clear-cut answer. But I made an observation uh, some years back that really helped me with this. The observation was that often I found, even in my own life, that when we are complaining about the suffering in the world uh, and God, what appears to be God's absence, uh, we're usually not the ones who are actually doing the suffering. Uh, We're the ones observing it outside, from the outside, so to speak. And generally speaking, uh, when I talk to people who are actually suffering, who are the ones enduring difficult circumstances, they actually talk about an intimacy of God's presence with them in it. Amazing amount of conversations I've had with people who don't know Jesus, and it's actually through a season of intense suffering that they come to know him because they know his presence with them in the midst of it. I was in Congo some years back, uh, my wife and I, and we got to meet a number of pastors uh, from the Congo who uh, were tortured, uh, basically, for their faith. And, and um, it was interesting to hear, in my mind, you know, as first someone was telling me about what they endured, and my mind went to kind of, God, where were you? Like, how did that happen? And then I heard them talk about it, their own story. I go, man, God is so good. He was present with us in the midst of it didn't explain it, per se, but he was with us, and he's shaped and grown and formed us through that process, and he's actually used it redemptively to give us a voice that speaks uh, for peace building and reconciliation in our community, in our society. Mercy in a TV episode some years back where uh, I just remember this is there, a journalist was interviewing a janitor in the ER, and he had his mop, and he was kind of mopping up some blood and some yucky stuff off the floor, you know, and the journalist asked the janitor, like, with all the stuff you see in here every day, like, how can you believe in God? And he goes, with all the stuff I see in here every day, how can I not believe in God? I think that's true. When we really come to know the gospel, the God of the cross, we find that we serve a God who is close, who is intimate, and who is present in the cracks, the margins, the brokenness, the suffering, the outcast areas of our world. And he's present there redemptively. I think this addresses a couple of things. Um, You know, one, I think it addresses the question of uh, where do we go to look for God? Where do we find God? I used to have this sense that, like, okay, if I want to go find God, I need to get out into creation. Like, and I like creation. It's been great being here. But I need to go on a hike. I need to get up in the mountains. I need to get away from the stress, the craziness, the chaos of life, the noise, the job, the kids, everything else. And, um... And then, like, I can encounter God there. And I do think there's a reality to an encounter with God's presence that, that, that's had there. Uh, but I think the cross speaks to a sense that there's actually perhaps a greater intimacy with God in the slums than out on the hike. In meeting with a friend who's hurting, who's broken, and, and being present with them in that, than being away from the stress of it all, that Christ is actually present in the cracks and margins and hurting places of our world. And as we go there, as he calls us with him on his mission to be present there, we actually experience an intimacy with the creator of all things. I remember a a couple who had gone as missionaries to the Philippines and were serving there long term. And uh, and they came back. They went with their kids. They were living in a slum, kind of like the one that we saw with sort of cardboard-type housing, sewage running through the streets, and their four kids. And uh, they came back for a couple weeks visiting, and I was with someone who asked them, like, so why, um, what prompted you to go move there? And their response, they kind of laughed and chuckled and said, uh, we just found out where Jesus was living and moved in next door. And <laughs> that was good. 
So there's a sense of going, I think the cross changes. It transforms where we go to look for God. Whereas before, the places of hurt and brokenness in our world feel like areas that God is absent. We actually learn to experience the presence of the God of the cross in the God-forsakenness of his world. Second thing I think it teaches us is how do we go about mission? Uh, as God has gathered us as the body of Christ and called us into participating with his heart for the world, how do we go about it? And I, th- I think it's significant that God is calling us with him into the cracks, into the margins, into the broken areas, uh, marginalization, hurt, and brokenness of our world. I remember seeing a couple years back, it was, um, it was in the papers and it was kind of advertisement for a church event. They were trying to get everyone to come and it was uh, advertising free Xboxes, I think, to the first 50 people or something who came. And I don't know the whole backstory or whatever, but I remember just something in my heart churned a little, the sense of feeling like we've got to use flash, power, technology, money, influence, wealth to try and get people into the front door so they can receive the gospel. Uh, And I think the gospel actually moves us in the other direction. As God calls us into his mission, he calls us sacrificially of stepping out of our doors into the cracks and margins of our city, of our world. A friend of mine, back in our... We have an event called Love Portland uh, every year that's uh, just been awesome to see. Kind of launches hundreds to thousands of volunteers into the city every summer, uh, partnering with our city on different community uh, rehabilitation projects. Uh, But it all started back in the day uh, where a friend of mine uh, started (coughs) this thing where there was a park in town, and the park had been uh, basically in disarray. The police had had to shut it down because of crime, of drug use, you know, needles uh, everywhere, and and, uh, a number of fights and violence that had broken out. And so the park had been shut down for about six months. And uh, his friend basically rallied the church around and said, let's go and clean up the park. So we had about 200 volunteers come, and there's like dirt, dust clouds flying, and gravel, and rocks, you know, getting getting uh, put everywhere, and the place was just a mess, and you see the whole place getting cleaned up, and the images throughout the day, I remember seeing uh, some of the homeless community came out and partnered with us, and I remember seeing a homeless guy planting flowers with a child next to him, and the parents kind of helping, you know, and there's something really powerful going on there, and this, uh, you know, guy in his 80s, like, like having a wheelbarrow full of, of gravel and stuff he's pulling along, alongside this 20-year-old, There was a sense of community coming together around the gospel to bring transformation. And there was a mural that went up on the outside wall. And the artist who was doing the mural was not a a follower of Jesus, uh, but she just loved what was going on, so she came to do this. And I remember standing with her and her husband as they're kind of overseeing the mural project. And um, some people are walking by throughout the day, and this guy is like, what's going on here? There's like this dust cloud and all these people and everything going on. And her husband, who's also not a follower of Jesus, but he goes, you see, these people believe in resurrection. And so they're bringing some resurrection life to this park. And I thought, it was so profound. Someone who's actually not a follower of Jesus is proclaiming the gospel to the passers-by with this sort of signpost of redemption that's going on. I think whether it's internationally or whether it's right here in, in in our own city, God calling us into his mission of going into these places. Uh, some friends in Vietnam that work in some of the indigenous minority groups said one of the big uh, ministries that's become really profound there is ba- basically a burial ministry where they care for the dead. Uh, in a lot of the communities, it's taboo to touch a dead body, to be around dead people. And, uh, and as followers of Jesus now, 
they've kind of gone, actually, we don't need to fear death because Christ has conquered it. And so uh, these are a lot of the areas where persecution still takes place from local government authorities. And, uh, and they said one of the things that's been so powerful to see is where there was formerly hostility towards the church. And then as the church goes and they're caring for the local government official's dead son or his dead wife, the bond that develops there and how the church's ministry actually speaks through the, mar- the ultimate margins of death back into the life of the community as a whole redemptively. So finally, in wrapping up, uh, I just want to hit the last part of 1 Corinthians 1 here, where this is not only a story for our world, it's not only a story for Israel, for Cambodia, Vietnam, for Jesus, for our city, but it's actually a story for us as well. Paul closes, verse 26, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel proclaims that this is not, you know, only a story for the world, but it's actually a story that works the same way in our own lives. That I was at a men's retreat recently, and it was interesting, the whole point for the retreat this year was getting to know the stories of other men in the community. And as, as that was taking place, I was just struck time and time again how in everyone's life, the point through which they came to know Christ was generally the area of their deepest shame, brokenness, guilt, marginalization, uh, ways that they had hurt others, ways that they had been hurt, uh, conviction in the ways they had hurt others, comfort in the ways that they had, they had been hurt. And there was a sense that Christ had shown up in our own lives through the areas of our weakness, the areas that we don't have it together. And so this morning, as we just kind of close, uh, I, I'd really love for us to just uh, come as we come back to worship with just this uh, acknowledgement, maybe a reflection of gratefulness to God for the ways that he's shown up in, in our brokenness and our weakness. Uh, you may be at a place where you felt like, hey, I've got to achieve a lot of things for God. I've got to do a lot of religious activities, need to get more involved. Or it, it may be feeling like, dude, I'm insecure about the fact that um, I don't measure up at my job and I'm worried they're going to fire me. I don't measure up as a mom, I'm worried my kids are going to not turn out well. Like those are all areas of our own weakness, our insecurity and all. And often I think we feel like we've got to hide those, tuck those away, because God won't like that. We've got to put those aside so we can get on with the business of achieving stuff for God. And the reality is those are precisely the areas that God wants to bring before him, the areas that God wants to reveal himself to us most intimately and powerfully. And as that happens in our lives on a personal level, I believe we become the kind of people who are ready to step out into our city, who step out into our world, and we're no longer afraid of the cracks and the margins. Uh, We're no longer afraid of the areas that have been outcast and ostracized and exiled, but we actually are called into there as the body of Christ, as the people of God, uh, bringing the news of his glory and redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have found us in our weakness. God, if it was up to us getting all our stuff together, Lord, and, and, uh, and coming out after you, God, 
we'd have no shot in the world. And so God, I'm grateful, God, that you have entered our world, God, on big levels and on intimate, personal, small levels, God, that you start at the margins, you go to the outside, that you go to the ostracized and the outcasts and the exiles. And God, not only that you love them, but you make them your agents of redemption. And God, we come to you as a broken people, God, a people who have experienced your redemption in our own weakness, in our own lives. God, we receive your mission to us, God, your pursuit of reconciliation with us in the areas that we've been just cracked by the fall. So, Father, we pray that you would be forming us personally, God, as your people in this way, uh, corporately, God, as the people of God here together this way, and you would launch us out, Lord, into, into the city, into this world, as a people who are comfortable with the areas of, of uh, God, with the cracks and the margins, God. You would call us into your world as a people uh, who bear witness to your mission by going to those places that are outside, uh, going to the outcasts and the exiles and proclaiming your redemption. It's the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.